0: Welcome to the Telly Awards Podcast. I'm Amanda Needham, and this season, we're going beyond the frame to host a series of micro-conversations with industry experts reframing the video and television industry on a macro level. In this episode, we delve into the recent 2023 Writers Guild of America strike with our guest, Liz Hines, a writer for Last Week Tonight with John Oliver and WGA East Council Member. Stay tuned for intel on their strike strategy and contract wins, discussions of AI and Shakespearean monkeys and how to write a joke. Welcome to the Telly Awards podcast. I'm super excited that you are joining us today. One, as a writer, two, as a writer on a super cool show that everyone knows, and three, as a fairly active participant in the recent writer strikes who can on some level speak to what happened and why it matters. So if you could introduce yourself, tell us who you are, what you do, and what your role is with the union, the WGA.
1: My name is Liz Hines. I'm a late night writer currently on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver and I'm council member of the Writers Guild of America East.
0: The Writers Guild just finished an epic strike. Uh, It was a sort of historic amount of time and on some level historic wins. What are like three top line things that happened that the world should understand and the ramifications of it?
1: Big popular one is some guardrails against AI which is difficult to get concretely because you're trying to negotiate against law that doesn't exist yet in many cases. Now we do have some very basic parameters that I think are going to be kind of starting points for other industries trying to negotiate against AI. And anyone who's told no right away can be like, well, there is precedent for that, actually. This other union fought for very, 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 basic. Like, AI isn't its own intellectual property. And so far, the U.S. Copyright Office agrees with us on that. But you just have to kind of be always thinking a couple steps ahead of that because the studios are. The studios, it was the last thing that we were fighting over was AI. So, you know, there's
0: two ways to look at it. Oh, AI is a scary robot from the future that's going to kill everyone in their jobs. Or AI is a tool that can be mastered and used. Is it a scary thing? or were you asking for parameters around which which it's used? Can you explain some of the the thought behind how we need to be thinking about AI that came out in these negotiations, at least?
1: Absolutely. So we're not Luddites. Like, we're not saying that AI should be banned completely. I think what we were really fighting for is it should be up to the discretion of the writer, of the people who are making the product. If you are a writer who finds AI useful to bounce ideas off of, go for it. That's totally fine. What we wanted to prevent happening is the studios doing the kind of monkeys writing Shakespeare thing of we're just going to have AI churn out thousands of ideas a day. These ones are decent. Let's hire one writer for one day rate, which is what they propose for comedy variety writers, to punch it up. And if you do that, if you turn writing into a gig career, you eliminate the chance that anyone's going to get enough to qualify for health insurance. You're going to annihilate the pension fund. And that is not really catastrophic thinking on our part, because Carol Lombardini said in negotiations, writers should feel lucky to have term employment. So it seemed very clear that studios were hungry to leverage this as a way to eliminate that term employment.
0: Talk about upward mobility as a writer. What is the larger, like, moral reasoning here That makes it important to have things like room size or guardrails against AI.
1: I, of course, do think that there's a moral argument to be made that if you've, you know, kind of served your time in an industry and have more experience that you should be better compensated for your labor. But I think also on a really practical level. Part of Upward Mobility and becoming like a writer-producer and a showrunner is it it involves spending time on set. Speaking practically for the good of the industry, it is better if a writer spends time on set. It makes it easier for you to write in a way that makes sense to a director, to an actor, to the crew. If it is not absolutely necessary to have a rain scene, don't put it in. It makes life miserable for the crew. You can can make a more efficient show or film. You can make uh, a more creative thing if writers understand what it's like to be on set in every capacity.
0: Literally, everyone is talking about IP. Like we have techified art. It's like, what's the product? What's the IP? Obviously, it's a business. It's an industry. But I'm curious, like your larger take on like how the industry is evolving from your vantage point.
1: I think this is a pretty natural end point to what happens when you starve the arts for like 30 years and tell everybody to go to business school. Then because we're seeing like... Very similar trajectories happening across lots of different industries. And this is this is just the latest one where you have people come in and just ruthlessly be like, How can we make this efficient? I've talked to like some real AI heads who think that like the concept of a human made film will that will become what indie cinema is. And the thought of that is like pretty heartbreaking. But
0: like the trajectory of data supported pilots less money in the hands of executives to experiment with 25 grand and say, give me a pilot, at least all of that has shifted to people like horror, Tom Cruise and missiles. So we're just going to make a movie called Horror Tom Cruise Missile, and then people are going to click on it and then realize it's shit, but they're still clicking on it. So then it sort of is this cycle of
1: crap. We are making steps towards data transparency, because, again, it's like, how do you measure the success of something? And if it was, oh, here's the first fully generated AI film on Netflix, maybe it gets a billion clicks and maybe everybody tunes out after the first three minutes. So what counts as a view? Does that count as being successful? Does it not? So I think stuff like that is going to matter even more going into this because we're not getting an accurate sense of what people like.
0: The idea of data transparency and it incorporating like what's good. Not just like what's clicked on or what's business is like actually revolutionary, Liz, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, because so often, like the metrics that we use for everything, they outsource externalities. It doesn't count. Not part of it. It's like, what would be an inclusive data set for a successful show?
1: I, I think third party validation is always a good thing because there was this case that we had with Amazon where I believe once they reached a certain subscriber threshold, they would have to pay the writers of Prime Series higher residuals. And they got there. And a third party source was like, "They, yes, we're analyzing the data and they're absolutely at that mark. And Amazon just said, no, we're not. Peacock, for example, The Office, Peacock built their entire ad model on how many episodes of The Office you could access I don't think those writers are getting a piece of that.
0: And that's the residuals argument, right? Just to break it down and correct me if I'm wrong. Traditionally, residuals happen when a show is re-released, generally on television, and therefore generally with a new slate of advertisement that supports the new release, which then actually... The writers are getting paid for the second release, I think because of the ad money.
1: If a company is making a bunch of money with ad revenue off something that you made, then you should get a piece of that. And we had a system for it that works on television. And it's just let's copy and paste this exact business model, subtract labor costs. And all of a sudden, wow, the bottom line is way better, it turns out, when you eliminate the major costs.
0: So how is that addressed now? Like, did they come up with a new residual situation for streaming.
1: We're not all the way there yet, but we do have better data transparency and there is now precedent for a success-based residual model. I think that we are gonna hammer that in the next couple of contracts and get some more parity between typical broadcast and streaming.
0: The point is it has to be a new model and people have to come to the table to figure out what the new model is and that takes work. It's like, one of the things I thought about when this strike started happening was, there is a strike happening And no one effing notices because we consume things on a on-demand model. So like there was a number of things different about the context of the reality of like where this industry is when you can have a strike and it doesn't feel dark because you can watch reruns of the Colbert Report or you can watch anything you want. It it potentially didn't have the same effect.
1: The other side of that coin is that people are online. So if they're not seeing it happen in real time on typical television. Like, I don't have cable. I wouldn't have known. But I do go online. And then people were, yeah, writers are online, not to mention all the support we had from other unions. There were going to be picket lines at all those places. But the heads of those unions reached out to our folks and said, we will encourage people not to cross a picket line. Then that changed our whole strategy. And Especially with IATSE, there were crew members who, of their own volition and at their own expense, because they usually didn't get paid, they would not cross the picket line. Production can't proceed. So the studios got hit, I think, harder than they expected to with that. They thought like, well, as long as stuff is rolling, then we're fine.
0: Can you tell us in a nutshell what it is like to work on last week tonight with John Oliver. How do you write hundreds of punchlines?
1: They're not all good. (laughs) Okay. But there's usually a couple people doing that at the same time. So you do not have to like do the burden all on your own. Okay.
0: So are you going to bring ChatGBT into this the next time it's just you and one other person and you have a hundred
1: lines? I would rather honorably submit a hundred terrible original punchlines.
0: Thank you so much for your time, Liz, and for breaking down like this macro structure for us a little bit and giving us some of the details that you guys just want. I am honored to talk with you and very grateful of all the work you're doing on behalf of the larger creative industry in general. So let's set some precedents and go from there.
1: I'm honored to be here. Thank you for for supporting us and covering this.